Hello, everybody. Happy holidays. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. This is the 12 Days of the Comic Source episode. Returning for his, what apparently has become an annual tradition here, uh, writer Tom King is joining me. Tom, thanks for taking the time. What a pleasure. Merry Christmas. This is awesome. It is an annual tradition. It feels like now it's finally the holidays. Yeah, right. Uh, right. So, yeah, it feels super cool. I tell a story about you, which has gotten more and more hyperbolic every time I tell it, where... We, we were talking about how much we both love Christmas. And we were talking about Christmas, like whatever, Christmas trees. And, and, and I was saying like, oh yeah, you know, we get do the whole Christmas tree thing. And you're like, yeah, we're not too into Christmas trees. I think we have like 18 or 20 in the house. I, I can't remember the exact number, but I remember being blown away by the number yeah. of Christmas trees you have. And we got more this year. So, I mean, only, only 15, like full size. There's one in every room. You have 15 full-size yeah. well, Okay, there's many questions about those two sentences you just said. There, you have a 15-room house? Holy shit, comic well, podcast. I mean, we're paying. talking we're talking like, you know, the bathrooms, the office, the kitchen, like like every not every bedroom, but You yeah. have, you have a Christmas tree in your a full-size Christmas tree in your bathroom? It's in the bathtub? <laughs> Cuz it's the only room. We don't use that. We don't use that bathtub, so and Does, and the and the one in my daughter's bathroom is it, it, I guess you wouldn't say it's full size. It's like you know four feet or whatever. It's on the counter. Um, same thing with the guest bathroom. It's a, it's a smaller one. It's like you know four feet, or whatever. So not not quite full size. But, I, 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 are they all decorated? You decorate all the trees. You have enough ornaments. They're all they're lights. all decor- they're all decorated. Some are themed. Like the one in my studio here is like a snowman theme. Instead of like a star on top, it has a top hat. And then all the ornaments are like uh, snowman theme. And then there's there's one by the back double doors, uh, French doors. That's a Harry Potter tree. And then there, actually, there's a second one in my studio that's a smaller, like a four foot that has superhero ornaments on it. And then we have the main tree. And and then the one in our bedroom, my wife and I. So we got married around Christmas time. Here's a great tip: if you're planning on getting married, kids. Get married around Christmas time. You don't have to pay for flowers in the church, right? Church is all decked out with <laughs> flowers for Christmas. Looks real nice. So we got married, we got married on the seventeenth, and so we gave out um, for our memento for Christmas. We gave out like these glass icicles that have this little white stripe that candy canes down that glows in the dark, uh, and the, and they're like clear glass. So that's what we decorate that tree with because it's like you know the leftover mementos from our our wedding. So yeah, I mean we we love Christmas around here. Um, we actually have a tree in the front yard now. That's a it's a fake. I live in Phoenix, so you can't really have real trees because it's too dry. The needles fall off immediately. But yeah, we we have gone crazy. And I made the mistake this year when my wife got all the decorations up, and I said, "Hey, honey, um, did you put everything out? Because it feels like less this year. Like total rookie mistake." Right? She's like, "It does. I put everything out, but I can <laughs> if it feels like less, I can fix that." That's how we ended up with another full-size tree this year. So my own fault. Uh, so what is the actual total? What is the non-hyperbolic actual true total of trees? You know, in your like house? if you want to talk about anything that's like a six inches or higher, it's probably close to like eighty. But if you're talking, whoa, like, whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. It, I thought you were going to say close to like nineteen, eighty, no, because eight, zero. Yeah, because we have. But, a, I mean, living things that you have to pour water on that will be put no, out so on no, the side. So none of them are alive. They're all. Oh, they're not live. No, okay. No, none of them are because again, I'm in Phoenix, and we we made the mistake of getting a one real tree the first year we were here, and yeah, the the needles fall out. It's so dry here; the needles just fall off immediately. 
and oh, wow. it's just yeah it's too it's too dry so now they're all they're all fake trees but they're ev- they're everywhere like everywhere you turn every surface is covered with trees and my wife has a christmas train village with snow and lights and you know have you ever seen those um ceramic like it's a wonderful life buildings yeah 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 the light up ones that's the the village and then the train runs between the buildings and oh yeah. that's amazing yeah, we, we go all out, man. We love Christmas. We have a big Christmas party. So she she would do this every year. And I would like, sweetheart, nobody sees this. We need to start like, inviting people over. So now we do a, a cocktails and cookies party. She loves to bake. So she bakes all the cookies. I make the cocktails. They're all Christmas themed cocktails. You got to yeah, invite have, Mitch. We had 40, 40 people. You know, I've invited Mitch out to dinner like so many times. The thing is like he lives in Chandler, which is like almost an hour from me. And then, you know, with the kid, whatever. And I, I mean, he's, he's invited, standing invitation yourself as well. If you're ever here visiting, uh, yeah. Bring the fam, hang out, be fun. Well, I got married in March and this is the worst time to get married. I do not recommend if for all our wedding people out because I have a present gauntlet. I have to run starting this month where I have December and then kind of have January off. It was like our first kiss. And then February I have Valentine's day. March, I have her anniversary. April is my wife's birthday. And then May is Mother's Day. So it's five gifts in five wow. in, in five months. And my wife, I can't think of five things to buy her. I have, by the time I'm at the end, I'm like, you know, you know, I'm getting her roses. She doesn't give a fuck about I like, <laughs> it's it, like the well runs dry by the time I get to gift number five that I'm just starting the gauntlet. Yeah, I can't imagine. It's hard enough just that curse. Because like, here's the thing, right? If you're an adult and you need something, you go out and buy it. That's what being an adult is. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's and my wife, is, yeah. And my, my wife's terrible. Cause she's, she's a, she's just a, like this, you know, she, she's a Midwestern hardworking lawyer. She doesn't collect anything. She doesn't want anything. If she wants something, she goes buys it. Yeah. She's not, she's not like me. Like you can all like, I'll take some art. I'll take some comics. Like there are things that I just acquired for no reason. My wife doesn't have non-practical acquisitions. So See, I'm lucky. My, I can get my wife something that's like Harry Potter or Gilmore girls SG one. Yeah. There's a few things. There's a few things. That's the thing. You got to You got to find her one thing, and then uh, it, you, that five months will be easy, easy peasy. Yeah. So, anyway, everybody's like, "Are you guys going to talk about comic?" Yeah, let's talk about. <laughs> here's a great segue. We're talking about our wives. Let's talk love everlasting. Which <laughs> yes, love everlasting. No, so, I want to walk to it. You, you, you made my heart drop. You're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you out on killing time. I want to skip to the. Oh, you want to, you want to skip. I want to start time? with the negativity. So okay, like hanging okay. over me. So here, here's like, I loved killing time. What did I do first, wrong? First of all, time wrong. David Marquez art was fantastic. Oh, he's the best. Uh, and it was oh. really fun. And part of me felt like the title was very appropriate because you read it. And you didn't, I mean, like some of your work, not, I won't say all of your work, but like many of the things you do, there weren't necessarily, it wasn't all tied up in a nice, neat bow, right? So did I read this for a reason? Did it solve anything? Or was I just killing time by reading it? So I liked that aspect. There was a little irony there. But the yes. thing I'm going to call you out on is you That's were a good on, title. It has like 17 different meanings. Yeah, killing yeah time very, time. very deep. And I appreciated that. But the thing I'm going to call you out on is you were on the show right. last year. And you said, yeah, Killing Time's coming up. It's this great big popcorn action epic I'm doing with David Marquez, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And unlike most things I do, it's straightforward. It just goes from point A to point B to point C. And then we read the book, and you're flashing back to like ancient, what is it, Mesopotamia or something? What was that about? You told me it was ancient Greece. It was ancient Greece. The timeline was A to B to C. 
Yeah, and, that was it. Was it was it was a straight up adventure? They were just two people on the run was. who eventually get caught. It was, uh, but you gave I, me. And I, yes, I, I threw in some ancient Greek allegory just yeah. to. So that's the only thing. I was like, wait, no. Tom said this was going to be completely straightforward, and it it was pretty straightforward. But even in the modern times, you sometimes flash back to earlier in the day. Well, I mean, that's the reason it's also called Killing Time because the comic itself kills time. It it uh. It, it it's it's told in a way where we're, I'm saying you don't have to do linear storytelling. You can tell you can tell the page after before you tell the page before. Like so, the, that okay. was another meaning okay. of, the, of the whole I'll buy killing that. time thing. I'll buy that. Uh, and again, not that I didn't enjoy it, but you did come on here and say I did. No, you're true. Go, I, it, I, it was going to go in order. Barely, you know. Was, I mean, it's it's. I mean, compared to like all the bad bands where he's just looking in his navel and wondering about his parents dying, like there was none of that. It was, it there was, was, it didn't rain one time. It didn't rain one time. It ended in a big action. There was a big action climax with a bunch of people fighting and dying and Batman saving the day. Um, uh, it, it was, it was told from perspective of a person who didn't know who Batman was. The narrator is a no Batman secret identity. So you had no Alfred scenes. You had no bat cave scenes, no no mansion scenes. It was all straight up bat. Yeah, um, it was great. I bought like twenty copies of issue three. The Greek stuff. The Greek stuff started with you know at first I was like this will just be a metaphor, but I didn't want to. As soon as I turned it in, and, and they're like, okay, what's in the box? You know, was the of course the question in the beginning. What's the doodad that they're all chasing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your instinct as a writer is just to pull a Pulp Fiction and be like, no, but they never find out what's in the box. And, you know, they just look at the glowing like that's like such an easy way out. And uh, my editor kind of tentatively, you know, because he could see that coming. He's like, are you going to do a Pulp Fiction thing here? And as soon as I got the email, I was like, I don't want to do a Pulp Fiction thing. I want this to actually be something both meaningful and meaningless. So I that that's where the Greek thing came where I'd be like be like I'm going to tell this sort of metaphor about this ancient Greek play that's all about um identity and killing and and again about 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 uh killing and sacrificing uh and then that's going to lead to what's in the box and so the metaphor becomes kind of a solid thing that they're chasing so they're almost chasing the metaphor but the and, better, and it, and well, and it was only the, the other thing that was cool is it was only the metaphor that had power, like so many things, right? It only has power because you think it does. Like money only has value because we say it does. It's just yes. a piece of paper. It doesn't actually mean anything. Or cloth, cotton, I guess it's made out of. But yeah. The, well, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I just, I, yeah, there's was, there was so much, and that was, that was so much fun to tell because I could tell about like, you know, in, in medieval, medieval time, in medieval times, uh, uh, we watched the Green Knight defeat the Red Knight, and we had a, a chicken turkey. I know. In in medieval times, you know, there was this big thing where they would worship objects in church, and they'd have like, oh, this is like a tooth of Christ, or this is like a, his toenail, or this is like a piece of wood from the cross. And churches would fight over these objects because they keep a, it was like a money thing. You know, whoever had the yeah. best one got the most people to come, and some of them were complete fakes. Like obviously, like. Most 90% of them, nobody knew what the Jesus's cross was. It was long lost to history. Um, so it was nice to sort of play with that concept as that this is, this was one of those objects that had been turned into something bigger than it was, um, you know, through all that stuff. So, yeah. And t- it's, so t- the reason I bought three copies of, or so many co- copies of issue three, I, I don't know, it probably wasn't 20, but it's in double digits. Um, it was a one for of- each Christmas tree. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> 
No, but his debut of a fantastic character, I think, has so much potential. So I'm, I, I admit I'm speculating on it a little bit. Um, the help, I think that's a, that's a such a fascinating character. And again, it is as Tom mentioned, it is early in Batman's career. He's not maybe as formidable as he is later on. But this guy, he was giving Bruce a run for his money. So talk a little bit about conceiving the help. Like, where did he come from? How do, how do you see him? Well, uh, I was noticing after I left the book that uh, people were having a ton of success in Batman, um, creating new characters like Punchline. Right. You know, uh, um, usually beautiful young women of color, you know. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to invent an old, old white guy and see how that goes. <laughs> I was like, I see everyone's success and I'll do the opposite. Um, yeah, it, I, it was, it, I'm really bad at adding new characters. I've been in DC almost 10 years and I've almost added nothing. I feel like I've done a lot of reviving of characters I'm very proud of, but in terms of adding like actual characters, um, I have done very little. You know, I don't think Gotham Girl is lighting the um, the streets on fire. You know, I was, I was just at a bookstore yesterday and I saw like three books on the Court of Owls. I didn't see anyone writing a Gotham Girl novelization. Uh <laughs> So I, I I wanted to invent some characters like uh, and yeah, the, the one that came to mind, he just started out as like, oh, you know, he was going to be I just needed like a character to deliver this money in the first issue. And then I started coming up with his backstory and being like, oh, man, I love I mean, you'll see some of this in um, Danger Street, but I, I love in. In, in a lot of prestige series, there's like the the bodyguard guy who's mm-hmm. really the toughest guy. I, so I think especially in Boardwalk Empire, they play with that concept a lot where he was constantly going from bodyguard to body. One of his bodyguards was Daredevil. Um, and uh, so I was like, oh, here, this is, but he's like the ultimate bodyguard. But then I was like, okay. And then my favorite debut in comics where a character debuted was Cable back in the day. I was young. I thought the Cable debut that, that, that Liefeld and Simonson did was so cool because he came on and he wasn't like, Oh, I'm a new character with a cool look. He came on and Wolverine's like, Oh no, cable, you're back. I remember us fighting, you know, three weeks ago. And then, you know, Mr. Fantastic was like, cables in town. Oh crap. Like everybody already knew him. Like he already had a lore. So I wanted to create a character like that where he already sort of had been around and he had like deep history. Um, And yeah, I I love that character. It was incredibly fun to write. I like how he speaks and sort of this, you know, um, patrician kind of way sort of talks down to everybody and, but he can back it up. He's just, he's been, are you a game of Thrones person? I'm Um, I'm not, I'm familiar with it, but never, never watched it. Uh, there, there, there's a, there's a character in game of Thrones. Who's like the old knight who everyone kind of dismisses, but he was always the best fighter in Westeros for like 50 years. And now he's too old and he ends. And I I love that character of the idea that he still has like one last ride in him. So he's a little bit based on a game of Thrones character. Well, Um, yeah. So it's all, it's all that stuff. And he's returning. The the help is returning. He'll be in penguin. So. Oh, fantastic. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. I really want to see more of, of the help and not just because I, you know, bought a bunch of copies of his first appearance, but just because I think the character has 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 so much potential, so. But both uh, the help and Agent Bleep Nuri Espinosa will be in uh, Penguin. Oh, she, you did a great job with her too. She was one of those characters that you just kind of love to hate. Like she, she, you instantly dislike her, and she <laughs> she leans into it, and you're there pushing her into this like intense dislike. And when everything blows up, literally blows up on her in the end, you, you, it's satisfying. It's well, I was. So- I was writing sort of a foul mouth Supergirl where she, but, you know, she swore it, you know, once every few pages. I was like, what if I have a character who swore every single panel? <laughs> and then that that's how she sort of came about. She was like the extreme version of what I was doing with Supergirl. 
Well, you have... she's she's named after one of my best friends from elementary school, wherever she is now, Nuri Espinosa. Uh, well, I was going to say, you, you know, you have a background in working in the intelligence community in, uh, you know, for the U.S. government. Other than her being named, other than her being named after somebody, you know, way before that, it, it, any of anybody you knew when you were working? Did she, or did you pull from any of your superiors? Did you have a, a colleague that swore every word balloon, every other sentence? You know, now that you say that, I don't think I did it consciously, but she does resemble one of my bosses I had. Yeah, now that I think about it. <laughs> um, a lot, and, and, uh, I had a lot of women bosses and I see a tough, tough, admirable women who were on the front lines of the war on terror. Um, and yeah, she's definitely calls like that sort of no nonsense, you know, I, I, I get my way and there's only my way. And yeah. I think yeah, as a I, woman in cool. that, in that world, you, you sort of have to be tough just to kind of put up with all the machismo and politics. I think it's probably, I mean, I was in the CIA almost 20 years ago now. So I think it's probably changed a little bit, the dynamics, um, cause if you were coming up, if you were a senior, you know, you'd, you'd come up in the nineties and eighties. So back then you kind of had to adopt that kind of personality. Hopefully people can, you know, be their best selves to be the best managers they could be by now, but yeah, it's kind of a different time. Hopefully. Well, speaking of, uh, that's a good segue to get back to, to love everlasting. Cause speaking of like old tropes and this idea that women should be silent, barefoot and pregnant. Yeah. married <laughs> yeah. i suppose as as well married, married uh, happy in love and happy and married yeah yeah right um and i'm such a, i'm such a hypocrite so i i was just your latest issue of love everlasting just came out and it was a bit of a departure from what we've seen of joan peterson before for for those not familiar this woman she's like trapped in a romance comic and she gets killed at the end of each and then wakes up at the beginning of the next issue and she's just in another tropey romance story well she gets and, killed or she falls in love she has a choice right, right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And she's in this last issue. She's actually talking to somebody who has some answers of where she might she might be. And we're well, I think five or six five issues. Issue five just came five, out. Yeah, this is the end of the first arc. Issue. Yeah. And so you know, I'm I'm over here reviewing another comic recently where they've dragged out like a mystery for what I feel is too long, like 15 issues. I'm like, you got to give me some answers already. Like, what am I <laughs> reading this for? But then I'm over here reading reading oh, your book, and I'm like, "Love everlasting." That's going to last like sixty issues. It's going to well, take what I'm a saying. while. But that's that's what I'm saying. I even admitted it when I was doing the spotlight um, new comic episode. I'm like, I'm such a hypocrite because here's the thing with Tom's book, Tom and uh, Elsa's book, it works right because that's the point. The point is the torture. The point that it's never ending. Like I was saying, she's still. Joan still has fire. She's still ready to fight. Like she's not broken yet. And I feel like who, whoever, for whatever reason is putting her through this, I'm assuming they're trying to make a point. They're trying to break her. And until she gets like to the point she's broken, they're going to just keep doing this. But I mean, in a way it's like a horror book being trapped in, you know, these tropes and this world where, Hey, do what I tell you. I'm pulling your strings. Like there's no free will. So the most Tom King book ever. I, it was really hard to sell because the it, you're exactly right. It's a horror book. It's a science fiction book, but the horror and the science fiction part of the, the her world is not built out of you know robots and spaceships or dragons and knights. Her fantasy science fiction world is built out of 1950s tropes about romance, which are just as absurd as knights and dragons. But that's that's her. That's where she is trapped. That, that's the trope that she is trapped in. Um, so, uh, 
yeah that's it, it is it's a it's a very book it's a very tom king book where it, it's it's sort of tom king book it's very also chart chart day book too um but yeah it, it's about the trap of the ideal i mean i've been playing with this since i first wrote my first novel it's not that great but like it was about an ideal world of superheroes that all fall apart and they kind of long for it um so sort of the distance between fantasy and reality is like this theme that i just keep punching back to um, well, it's, I mean, it's easier to read a, a horror book with, with monsters or, you know, Frankenstein or werewolf or Dracula or, or aliens or, you know, whatever body horror. It's horrific. It's revolting when it's love. That's sort of the, the thing you want to fight against. Like, don't, don't, I mean, we all want to feel loved and feel belonging. And when that's, that's wept, like when I was reading the latest issue, I'm like, Tom and Elsa have weaponized love. Like you guys are evil. I think, I mean, I think that that's the point of it is that it's easy to hate a werewolf. Um, uh, it's, it's like, I'm obviously not the thinnest man in the world. So I mean, and I've always been a, a bigger guy and like my weight goes up and down, which means I've been on a lot of diets. And it's, it, it, food is not like a drug where you can just say, no, I don't want to. You, when you're on food, you, food is always wonderful and you have to eat it so many times a day. Um, so res- that, that's what love is like lo- love. I mean, for Joan, like she still wants to be in love. She still feels happiness, but it's also the thing that's torturing her and hurting her. And that to me is more interesting than a werewolf where you're just like, you're a monster. I have to run from you. Right. Um, exactly. Like, like where, this- where, where's the line? Where does, when does love stop being good? When is it too much? You know, where, yeah. where is that line? And maybe the line's different for everybody. And part of the torture for Joan um, is, is that, she, she she's put in these situations. She lives these entire lives and she wants to love these people. Like she's genuinely in love with these people. And she knows if she gives into that, if she falls in love, if she, if she embraces it, they're taken away from her and, and, and she has to have a new love. So like that, if, if she leans into it, she's torn out. So if she, she runs away from it, then she's torn in a different way where she's sort of torn from her love in that way. So it's this, it's this sort of endless cycle that she's, trying to figure out the rules and how to break in and how to break out and who's doing it. And, and um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the story of the book. I mean, that's the the broad arc. So Elsa and I very much were like, we know this is going to be kind of a lost thing where this is a big mystery that goes on for a bunch of seasons. Um, so we didn't want to do a lost style. We, 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 we mapped out the ending. We know exactly how it's going to end. We know exactly what the trap is. Um, you know, we, 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 so we can put clues from the first issue to the next. Um, so at least that's solved. But the point of the book is not to just find out the mystery. If you're just reading each book being like, oh, in the next issue, I'm going to find out um, what this is. That's like watching Gilligan's Island to see if they get off the island. That's not going to be fun for you. That's the point of the show. So the the point of this is not to uh, it's not a it's not a comic about getting off the island. It's a comic about exploring this island. She's in a world. She's in a world that you've never seen. You've seen a world of dragons. You've seen worlds of, of superheroes. You've never seen a world that's built out of romance. Um, and she's going to go and explore that, like like Frodo crossing, you know, uh, uh, Middle Earth. Um, yeah, a, a prison of romance. Uh, a prison of romance. Yeah. Very, very so 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 that that's 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 what the book is. And the second arc, Elsa is just finishing up the fifth issue. Um, and so that's all that's all done. And the second arc is, uh, yeah, it, it ups the stakes a, a notch. It's 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 super crazy. So um, how are readers re- responding to it? I haven't seen a whole lot of people talking about it, but th- those that I do seem to really enjoy it. 
<laughs> no, this, the, no, but this is such a weird book. I, I, when people at cons bring it to me and they're all like, Tom, this is very strange. <laughs> That's generally, it's almost a universal reaction of like, this was a very strange book because I think most people were like, when the, when the ads first came out, they're like, oh, Tom's doing a straight romance book. That's weird. Who'd want to read that? Um, but people are nice enough to, to give it a chance. And it's not that. So the people who were thinking I'm going to give a romance book a chance didn't get that. And the people who were like, I like horror books didn't go to it because it was a romance book. So it, it just became a very sort of strange, odd book. But I like that. I, I, I think as a creator, you want to make, you know, you want to flex your, um, you know, your Inglehart muscles. You want you want to make things that are a little weird and off and, 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 and bizarre. Um, yeah, I, I, I dig that I have something that's, that's weird. I, I dig that like, you know, Grant Morrison's Invincibles, man. I, every, every time I read an issue of that, I was like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and, and I wanted to do my, my, my Invisibles. So, um, uh, th- think of it that way if you want. Yeah. It's a very weird book, but uh, it's, it's drawn so beautifully and done with such care and the lettering is beautiful and Matt Hollingsworth, the colors is great. Um, and yeah, Elsa's got a, she's got a unique uh, visual aesthetic on, on the book. It's not her, you know, necessarily her usual style. If you're familiar with her previous work, um, th- you know, these are thicker lines, definitely kind of homaging those those classic romance comics of the, the 50s. But again, it suits what you guys are doing so well. And, and but I mean, it's been such a success story for Elsa and I between Substack um image uh and hollywood it's it, it, it's just like just an engine that keeps that keeps churning for us this silly little story about romances so uh i'm incredibly happy with how it's come out and, 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 I, and I love the book even yeah, my, my my daughter reads it and, and she's like what is this so <laughs> is it she can't put than, it down is, is it different in terms of of the way you work on the title because I know you're collaborating, you know, heavily with Elsa on that, but a lot of the other stuff that you're doing, we talked about this last time you, that you're on with the pandemic, you started writing everything kind of as one big story and then cutting it up rather than working issue to issue. Um, so it, is it different with Love Everlasting? Do you still work issue to issue with that? Well, it's ongoing, so it doesn't have, I can't write it all at once because that'd be like 30, 40 issues, but I've been doing a five issue chunk. So the first five were written all at once and the second five were written all at once. Um, that unfortunately is is that system which i love and wish i could do has fallen apart in the last two to three months um because of hollywood stuff this this hollywood work has come up big and hard right now Uh, i'm sure everything i'm creating you will never see but i'm working on it anyways uh and that's thrown off that schedule where i just to keep i I did a count of it and i have 15 if you count like trades that i have to promote i mean like four trades just came out. So, but I have, if you count all that, I have 15 projects I'm currently working on. So because of that, I know it's not as many Christmas trees as you have, but it's a lot for me. (laughs) Uh, I uh, mean, but that, that's a good problem to have. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. And actually I was just having dinner with, um, with a comic creator uh, at LA comic-con and they, I mentioned that you were working in this way, you know, cause the last time I uh, knew about it, you were in there. I don't know how, how he can do that. I have so many other things going on. It's so hard to set aside the time. So I guess it's Tom King's human after all. Everybody. I, I envy myself and I want it. And it's funny. Cause now I'm, I'm always like, whatever I'm working on, I was like, Oh, 
this is the one I'll just get back on track and, and go. And then inevitably some editors like, Oh, this artist just broke free. We need a script for them. And I was like, all right, let's do that now. Um, so hopefully I can get, I, I, I took, so I took four weeks off for a, ho- a big Hollywood thing. And this is the last of those four weeks. And then I'm back on, and if, I'm taking next week off because it's Christmas. And, uh, but starting the new year, I'm back on comics. So hopefully I can, uh, get back on that track and, and, and start, and start doing comics that way. Hopefully. Yeah. So obviously it's a better way to write. Yeah. I mean, and that's the case. And like I said, you, you got ahead on a bunch of stuff during the pandemic. So human target, you're, you're done writing that story. I imagine Gotham city year one dingbats or, or danger street, which has dingbats as a as character. Those are all, <laughs> those are all done in terms of script, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the, uh, danger street has been, been done for, for, for almost a year. Um, human target's been done for a year and a half. Um, a human target was written before Supergirl. Uh, and yeah. And, and same with Gotham year one is done. And like I said, I'm, I'm done with the first two arcs of love everlasting. So all the books that are currently coming out have been written extensively in advance. Um, so you'll try, but, try to get caught up on some of the new things that haven't been announced yet. Yes. And I have, a, I have a, an entire, I mean, that's, that's, I, I also wrote uh, in, in another indie series that I fit, I wrote and finished um, that's coming out. That's been purchased and is doing now. So I have that one's also in the can. Uh, but the, so the things that were just announced penguin, I, I haven't written that yet. And, uh, and the brave and the bold for Mitch, I've only written the very beginnings of that. So um, and then there's another big project they're about to announce. I'm only at the very beginnings of, and then there's two more indie projects. I'm only at the very beginning of, so I think there's like five projects that have written first issues of that. I need to write the rest. Something wow. like that. Four or five. Tons of Tom King content coming. That's a, that's a good thing for, uh, for comic fans. Of mine. But then there will be a weird pause a year from now, because that's when the Hollywood stuff will catch up and you'll be like, where did Tom's go? Yeah. They're like, uh, where's, yeah, where's, yeah. That's when, well, that's, that's a, when, yeah, that's the time when your trades drop and, and that works out that way. Uh, yeah. Well. There you go. But I was going to ask you about human target, which I mean, we, we talked about it la- again last year when you were on and the incredible job that Greg Smallwood is doing on art. I think that is the most beautiful book like of the last decade it is so gorgeous and i was yeah, if i see best of the year lists that don't have greg smallwood on them then you're not reading comic books yeah it, exactly. that's it's it's yeah. ridiculous i said when the first issue dropped I'm like this is not the best comic of the year. This is, like this is one of the best comics of the of the last decade i really feel and, and you you've captured such a unique tone you know that kind of mod uh late 50s early 60s mid 60s kind of feel um but I was curious about the timing. I was going to ask you, and you kind of answered it already. You finished it writing a year and a half ago because Love Everlasting is a love story, you know, twisted, uh, you know, Funhouse Mirror. Um, but in a lot of ways, Human Target is a, is a romance, but maybe more traditional, you know, doesn't have that sort of twist. Romance is not the, the prison. Um, but one didn't necessarily inform form the other based on the timing. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, it's hard to remember things. I think I wrote them in the order Human Target, Supergirl, Killing Time, then Love Everlasting, and then Danger Street. I think that was the order, would be my guess. I could think, yeah. But, um, but it, it probably was informed because I think by that point I was, once I had done Supergirl, which obviously has no romantic element, and then Killing Time, which has no romantic element in it because it's before Batcat kind of hooked up. Uh, I 
um, I was ready, you know, romance is my, you know, that's my, that's where I live. I love that stuff. I love sexual tension between two people. Um, and so I was, I was kind of itching to get back to it, which is I think why writing the first five, five of Love Everlasting was like the best comic, most fun I had writing comics all year. It was just a joy to write those issues. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny that, that in, in one comic, you know, Love Everlasting, I'm kind of, I'm making fun of not making fun of love comics, but I'm kind of using them as um, uh, as a way to scratch the character, maybe the weapon. And then <laughs> uh, Human Target is just a, is a straight up, you know, love story. It is about two characters uh, who fall in love at a very tragic time in one of the characters' lives, and what that sort of means. Um, I was just I was just doing the work, work you know, finalizing issue eleven. And, and it, it's 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 a heartbreaking thing because he I mean, it's it's not a spoiler to say because it happens in the third page of the first issue. He dies at the end. <laughs> it, that's not a fake out. The uh, chance will not be alive in issue 12. Um, so so there there is some some heavy heartbreak um, uh, uh, coming. But but I think there's there's some beauty and sweetness and too, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit kind of a bittersweet journey to see these two people, you know, fall so deeply and hard for one one another when you you kind of know the ending you know it's like going to watch titanic just because you know the boat sinks it doesn't mean the story isn't worth you know watching and and uh and kind of thinking about and delving into and the other thing that i really enjoy about it and i can see it's his, his fi- i mean you can see in the issue one his final words are i love you too or something like that i mean his final this final thing is he smells her perfume and says that's enough i suppose yeah, he smells that, yeah, and that, that that's how he dies yeah so. that's that i can kind of stop the fight, right? Because in a way uh, from the origin you've given him, you know, the twist on his classic origin, he's always been a guy that was fighting. And we know that you're, you know, you mentioned your passion of, uh, for romance comics, but the other thing is the crime noir and Christopher chance is nothing. If not, you know, that hard boiled gumshoe detective, um, that, you know, tragic figure. And so really you're mashing up the genres and then you add in Smallwood's art and, like this thing should win every award in the book, in my opinion. He's the first character I've written that's cool. I mean, Batman is a lot of things, but he's not cool. He dresses up as a bat and goes out and gets angry at people. Right. Like he's not even when he like like Bruce Wayne just pretends to be cool. Like that's like his fake personality. Superman is the opposite of cool. Uh, um, uh, Mister Mir- Scott Free is not cool. He's a fucking geek nerd kind of. Adam Strange is a, is like a fake bully kind of cool. Like, like I've never written a character who's like straight up like, I wish I was this guy. Like he is. I wish I wore a suit like him. I wish I drank like him. I wish I sat in a chair and crossed my legs like him. He's just he's all he's you know, it's it's he's George Clooney in Ocean's Twelve. So or Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> I don't. He's good in Ocean's Twelve too. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's mixing that. He's, he's based off of. Um, of Dick Powell's personality in, in, in old noirs that kind of Dick Powell did his own Philip Marlowe. For people who don't know, Dick Powell was this, uh, crooner of the, of the thirties, like a, a very like high, high tone, like, you know, uh, a very emasculated is the wrong word, but he wasn't like a manly man crooner. He was like the, the, the nice boy, the girls fell for in the old musicals. And then he came back in the late forties kind of disappeared. And he, he, 
looked all scraggly, like he had smoked way too many cigarettes and drank way too much alcohol. And he started a bunch of noirs, but he never kind of lost his sort of song and dance, you know, 30s Busby Berkeley musical. It was like always, always buzzing beneath him where, you know, he even though he was saying hard lines, there was just a little bit of, you know, there's a glint behind his eyes of life. Um, and, 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 and that's very much, I built, I built chance off of that. Yeah. Again, a uh, fantastic series. Uh, I got to imagine it's one that's cause I, I don't, I mean, you mentioned earlier t- taking characters that maybe are a little less n- well-known and kind of, you know, reinventing them or reinvigorating them. I think Christopher Chance c- certainly suits that kind of motif, right? He wasn't uh, somebody that everybody knew, but I feel like he certainly raised his profile. I wouldn't be surprised to see see him show up in something else later on down down the line. <laughs> Obviously, this is out of continuity. It's not going to be uh, resurrected, I, but I mean, it's amazing you say that. But Christopher Chance has had two more TV series than Aquaman. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I guess I'm mad that one little cartoon, but like, uh, yeah. So it's it's funny that yes, yeah. That's a very, it's a he's a bizarre hero in the fact that yes, he's very he's like E level in comics, but outside of comics, there are many more people that know about him than know about say Booster Gold or someone who we would think would be sort of a higher pick. Um, yeah, that's true. But I kind of feel like if you told him it was based on a comic, they're like, what? That was a comic book first. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the actor's name? Mark Mark Valley, right? That was the one in the nineties. Mark Valley and then Rick Springfield had one. Yeah, that's right. Rick Springfield in the 80s. Yeah, late 80s. God, Rick Springfield. There's a blast. Blast from the past. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I, I also have to ask you about uh, Riddler One Bad Day. Because, again, we're talking, you know, best comics. There's another one. You and your frequent collaborator, friend of the show, uh, Mitch Garrods. Uh, and that one I did best. hear a lot of people just loved. And again, like a lot of Tom King books, like we said, not tied up in a nice neat bow at the end, but leaves it kind of open-ended. I won't put you on the spot and ask you if Batman killed the Riddler. Cause again, that wasn't the point. The point was to show that. <laughs> well, it's, Riddler- incontinuity, it's an incontinuity book. So if Riddler appears ever again in the Batman book, he did not kill him. There you go. Riddler is the smartest man in the DCU. The rival Lex Luthor. Uh, I, that was the premise of the book. I'm sure Riddler thinks that about himself. Uh, as a guy who very much loves Mr. Terrific, I would probably throw him on the table and I would love to see those two go against each other. I always wrote Mr. Terrific because he's, he's famously the third most smartest man. And and the, the joke he says is that when you lap the field, it looks like you're in third place when you're actually that far <laughs> ahead. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I, I'd put him against, but I, I did purposely put, in the thing where he says, like, all the Luthers, the Waynes, and the Holtz, he left them far behind. So, uh, well, yeah. well, here's the thing Between about those four, you'll have to choose. Here's the thing about the Riddler, though. Like, you, you can have that level of intelligence. Maybe he's not quite where Lex Luthor is. Maybe he's not quite where Mr. Terrific is. But when you have no reservations about what you're doing, when you have no compunctions, when you have no morality or ethics, you know, yeah, unrestrained. That- that was it. That I mean, Luther is. That's what makes Luther kind of. I mean, it's like my favorite Luther stories are those John Byrne stories, where like Luther uses his brain to figure out that Clark Kent is Superman and just can't accept it because mm-hmm. his hatred of Superman is bigger than a of a Kansas farm boy. Because um, Luther does care about something. He cares about himself being worshipped and being number one and being but be- he cares about him being better than superman that's like the thing luther cares about and one bad day was 
what if the Riddler didn't care about anything? <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, that, that was the point. Like he's always sort of held himself back because he cares about riddles and cares about puzzles. And that's always been like, I care about making myself vulnerable. You know, like when you do the crossword puzzle in the morning, the reason it's hard is because someone makes it hard for you. And that's why it's fun. Um, so he was purposely making his life hard to have fun. What if he removed that barrier? What if he didn't make his life hard and just released himself? Uh, that was the whole premise of the book. Yeah, it was so, it was so good. It was so scary. Like I've never been like kind of been indifferent about the Riddler. Um, I mean, he used to be really silly and then you, uh, they kind of leveled him up. Scott had a lot to do with that with year zero, uh, and made him, you know, a little more scary, but you and Mitch made him terrifying. Like this is not somebody that you want to mess with. And, but again, raising that question of, you know, should Batman be solving the prop problem? you know, like permanently solving the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I read a lot of Riddler stories and, and, you know, watched the anim- animated series had some great Riddler episodes. Um, but essentially they're 99% the same story. Like him and this, him and Scarecrow have that problem where their stories are always the same. The Scarecrows is always like, I'm going to make Batman trip out and, and, and be really scared. And then, and then Batman overcomes the tripping out and scare and, and punches Scarecrow. It's every single Scarecrow. And every single Riddler story is like, I'm going to make the ultimate riddle and Batman will never solve it. And then Batman, Batman somehow solves it. solves it and then cheats his way out. And, and yeah. so uh, we started with that as a premise of how can we not tell a Riddler story like that? Like, how could we do something different? Um, and uh, the first the first pitch, the first thing we came up with was that yeah, he kills a random person for no reason. Um, like, how frightening would that be? If his, you know, for whatever, you know, for eight, it's, it's, it's 70 years of continuity, but you know, it's actually 10 years in the book. He always kills someone for a reason. If one day he kills someone for no reason, what, what would that mean? If Batman just couldn't, could not find a reason why. So, so there was no puzzle who that make him. And we just kind of launched it from there. Yeah. It was fascinating and, and terrifying. Um, so again, kudos for that. And I, Interesting choice for DC to have you and Mitch go first. I mean, they had to know you guys had something really special and not to say that the other stuff hasn't been good, but nothing's risen to that level yet. Um, well, Mitch, but- Mitch drew it so, so pretty. And he, he yeah. gave it that sort of, I'm, uh, my, my, I have worked with the best writer, the best artists on Batman with Mikel and, and Tony Daniel and David Finch and even, even Mitch a few times. Um, Jorge. but my bat, Jorge, but my Batman was generally, a superhero like he was generally fighting you know big guys and big over situation there was usually some sort of hyperbole involved you know he was on a plane flying it he wasn't falling from the moon but (laughs) but but generally speaking it was a superhero comic and mitch drew this like a crime comic he drew it like it, it was a Batman comic I'd always wanted to make that I never got to make, you know, that's sort of what Frank did with year one. When you're like, I'm it's a Batman comic you're reading, but what you're really reading is some sort of mix of crime and, you know, old karate movie, you know, it's it mixed with a little mobster. Um, so I put that all on Mitch. He, 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 he set a tone that I was always looking for on Batman never could capture. And he found it. Yeah. He had some pretty long lines too. I went to a couple of his signings here when it, when it came out and uh, at a couple of locals, uh, a couple of local comic shops here and uh, yeah, well, well-deserved. So good on you. Dude, Mitch won the best Eisner artist for two years in a row. That's, that's rare. So Mitch, Mitch knows what he's doing. 
He's yeah. he's the best of the best, man. He's the top of the business. Yeah, you got to make make him start uh, paying for dinner. Those no, 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 no. My artists never pay for dinner. That's a rule. <laughs> Those fat artists. They get, anno- they get annoyed at me, but I never do that. <laughs> Writers should always buy their artists because artists work much, much harder than we do on what we do. Well, that's probably true. Um, but from one kind of crime book to to another, uh, you know, still Batman themed, um, your Gotham City Year One, which also has a unique look with Phil Hester on the art. Yes. Um, you know, I remember uh, at San Diego this last year, you had the, the Tom and Tom panel with uh, with Tom Taylor when you were talking about this book and talking about this being sort of the, the origin of Gotham City. When the yeah. story starts, you know, we have Slam Bradley there, um, this little kind of princess of the city, this little Wayne baby is kidnapped, uh, and it kind of starts the, the spiral to the Gotham City that we know uh, as more, you know, seedy and, and you know, crime-ridden and whatnot, but – even though from the outside looking in the Gotham city that you guys have created when the story starts seems to be a little bit utopian. There are cracks. There are so many of those social ills that came from that era, whether it's, uh, you know, prejudice against minorities or corruption uh, in the police department or, or what have you. So it, everything wasn't exactly an ivory tower in, in Gotham city. So, Talk a little bit about coming up with the idea, uh, you know, so often Gotham City is a character in these Batman stories. It clearly is the, you know, the main character of this book, along with Slam Bradley. But talk a little bit about deciding to really show us that evolution of Gotham between seeming to be, you know, more pure and innocent, and maybe it wasn't, and then kind of morphing into maybe resembling from the outside what it was all along. Yeah, I mean, I, I was born and raised in Los. Well, I was, I was born in Orange County, but I, I raised in Los Angeles. Um, I was there for the LA riots. My middle school burnt down, or not burnt down, but was on fire and torn down a little bit. Um, uh, so, and and you know, a huge old noir fan. A lot of old noir, especially the the novels of noir, take place in LA, um, and are about how controlled that city was in the fifties and sixties and, and how it became, it was, it was a very ideal. I mean, you watch back to the future of the idealism of LA in the 1950s. Like that's the whole plot of that movie, like how pretty and perfect we were back then. Um, but you know, anyone who maybe watched that, you know, huge ESPN uh, OJ documentary, uh, whoever lived in the city knows, you know, that, that, that illusion was bought at a price. Right. Um, and eventually that price had to be paid. It was almost like an original sin of the city. Uh, and so that's, that's where I wanted to talk about, like the, like the moment that Gotham city went from being a place where the police, you know, through means uh, the police were using sin to keep the sin out. And eventually that sin came to haunt them. Um, and this is the moment sort of that, that, that broke. Um, it's not the most original idea. I mean, if you ever seen the movie Chinatown, that's exactly what that's about. <laughs> so, um, and th- I mean, that's a, that's a heart theme of noir. It's been been around for a long time. Um, maybe I added more of a racial element in it. You know, again, influenced sort of by my own my own history. When I, I you know, I was I was I was a uh, you know eleven, twelve when the when the riots hit. And it, it very much felt like um, 
like, like this had always been there. And then some, some, someone like pulled back a curtain and said, Oh yeah, we're not this beautiful place with Cadillac dealers in Beverly Hills. Like there's another side to this story. Um, and, and, and so I wanted to sort of bring that out and I combine that with, uh, uh, you know, with the, the tale, the, the Lindbergh kidnapping, obviously, which was, you know, in the, in the thirties and in New Jersey, but, um, I did a, a shit ton of research on the Lindbergh kidnapping and, and sort of inserted that as, as sort of the, the, the crime that pokes the hole in the dam and, and, and sort of lets it all fly out. And, and so the Gotham city goes from a place that's, you know, low on crime, people are happy, but is uncomfortably segregated, um, to, to the Gotham city we know today, which is, a, which is, you know, f- f- like New York in the seventies, but 10 times worse, um, a, a, a city of crime. And once again, you're writing uh, for a protect- protagonist, just like Human Target, um, that doesn't have superpowers. Slam Bradley. <laughs> That's uh, true. Yeah. So, it, it, I was right. Your love of, of noir, right? I was writing this book and it was one of those books. I was like, they'll never let me do this again. Um, I would tell my wife, you know, every time I finish a script, again, I wrote this all, you know, uh, all back to back. I was like, I don't know why this got greenlit. I don't know who decided that I could write. I mean, the Human Target is um it's no it's very noir dipped you know it's 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 based in an old noir doa um the, the you know the, the chance character like i said taken from old dick Palmer. but it's in the modern day it has superheroes on some level it's an underpinning of that noir it's kind of turning it on its head because it's actually a romance um and it's, it's about sort of a noir flavor finding you know something true and because noir is kind of nihilistic it's about you know f- finding something to believe in in the middle of a nihilistic situation uh uh, Gotham City Year One is just the pure stuff, man. That's 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 like you know. I mean, it starts with the the, the classic boring cliche. It's been done a bajillion time. Noir premise. You know, a, a PI in a room has a beautiful woman come in and, and give him and put him on a mission that's not the mission he she says it is. That's how every single. Pair, I mean, like Steve Martin was making for that shit in 1970. You know, like it's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, this is just, I wanted to write the best, most pure version of, of noir. Well, you know, there's, there's a femme fatale, uh, there's, there's two women who are fighting over the soul of a man. It's, it's got all, every single trope, but I'm trying to make the tropes as awesome as possible. And what's the collaboration been like with Phil? Because Phil's art, I feel like this, Phil's art is best suited for noir, in my opinion. And I can't, I can't really imagine anybody else doing. I wasn't 100% on board with him after the first issue, but I knew I was like, you know what? I bet by the second issue, I'm going to, it's going to be one of those situations where I can't imagine anyone else having drawn that. Uh, and yeah, by the end of the first issue, I was already on board going, yeah, nobody else can draw this. Um, but Phil. It took a long time to find Phil. Usually, I mean, you know, most, you know, obviously for books I do with Mitch, we build them together. Uh, Human Target, you know, was, first artist offer was Smallwood. And I said, yes, uh, same with um, Supergirl. First artist offer was Bill. Cause we must've gone through 30 artists of sort of like, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't think. And then, you know, we, uh, is, can this person work with the schedule? We could not find the artist to fit the book. Um, Intel Phil broke free free. And I was like, yeah, I was, I think I had, I, I, look, he's a fucking genius of our industry. And, um, his Green Arrow run is one of my favorite comics of all time. I mean, it's obviously one of the sort of classics of, of both both the stuff we do with Kevin Smith and the stuff we do with Brad Meltzer, and then even you know the stuff following that with Judd. Um, 
I mean, just classic, beautiful, best comics of an Andy Clark. But uh, I was like, is this is this right? Is, he, is it going to be too abstract? And then he started turning pages. And it, yeah, as soon as I saw the first page, I, I, I was I was a religious convert and and was like, I'll shout it from the ceiling. Like he was he he nailed every aspect of it. And he was the only choice and the right choice. And just by the blessing of everything, we, we got the, the right person in the right place. And um, yeah, it, it's it's utterly gorgeous what he's doing in the storytelling. My storytelling, it's, I have a thing, you know, I, I like things that are in boxes. Um, you know, one box after another. If you any me and Mitch in a comic, that's like a classic example of my favorite kind of storytelling. Uh I, I occasionally work with artists who don't work in boxes. And I worked with Andy Tuber on, on Up in the Sky. He hates he'll, he'll he throws you know characters and has them break also. But Andy Tuber is one of the most genius, maybe the genius storyteller in the history of our medium, just because he's the son of a, a you know he's raised in comics like no one else has, and he makes that work. And I, Clay Man, another sort of genius. So so Phil does that. He doesn't work in boxes. He's breaking them all the time. He's going from here and there. But he is the, such a beautiful, perfect storyteller that he can make that magic work. In a way that few other artists can't. Um, yeah, I, 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 Phil's art is, is definitive on this book, and he's, he's yeah, doing. Yeah, again, it's a, it, that idea of it's such a classic noir with that idea of, of nihilism, like you mentioned, and kind of fighting against the tide of change. You know, and in this case, it's it's change, maybe not for the better of Gotham City, but Phil's art is so dynamic, and the line work is so strong that you know, it feels foundational. It feels big. It feels concrete. It gives it, it grounds it and it makes it feel real. It gives it more weight. And this is a, a story with weight and consequences. So yeah, I think that's the reason that it works so well. And Phil understands we're both, he, he's even better, more of a student of, of, um, of the history of DC art. So he, you know, he knows he's throwing in some toth over here and, 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 and he's, you know, throwing in a little carmine there and, and he's, he's, he's doing stuff that's like very sophisticated, a very high level of comp game. Um, yeah, it's, 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 he's a joy to work with and it's, it's, it's brilliant to see. I just have to decide what, cause he does, you know, I rarely work with artists these days who are doing traditional. He does traditional. I could get some pages. So I don't know. Oh, there, there you go. I could buy. Yeah. You know, I had, I talked to, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Josh Kassara over at Marvel. He works all traditional still as well. Ugh. I was really surprised cause his stuff's super detailed. I'm like, huh, that's good to know. I have to yeah. <laughs> look, up, look up some pages. Um, but one of the things that, that's interesting about uh, Gotham City Year One versus Danger Street, which we haven't talked about yet, is it is kind of on the nose. Like Gotham City Year One, you, you know what you're getting. Yes, there's some you know undertones and some some uh, you know subconscious themes or what have you, but it, it's things that we kind of know. We've only had one issue of Danger Street, and maybe that's why everything is still kind of up in the air. But after reading these that, these are such issue, weird comics. Every I, single one of them is bizarre. Yeah, like I'm, I don't know necessarily what it's about. And I, I said that when we did our DC Spotlight this week, and my partner uh, that does the show with me, Rocky's like, "Oh, well, it's it's this. These guys were, tr- you know, trying to capture Darkseid and use that as a springboard to join the Justice League, and like." Well, I get that. I, that's the story on the surface, but it's never that simple with, with Tom. And we also had a little kid get killed in the first issue, which is kind of dark as well. So, well, I mean, not, not that I want it spoiled, but I, think like, I killed the most children in comics. I think well, what's, 
like in your like as somebody was like, oh well, what's Danger Street about? Without spoiling, what do you like? How how what's the elevator pitch? How did you sell this book? Well, it depends. I mean, the easiest thing I do is have you do you watch Fargo the TV show? No. If you I don't, don't. So that's the easiest. So if you don't want that, then it's harder to explain because it's very easy if if you watch it. But um. Uh, how about Game? Do you watch Game of Thrones? You didn't want, we talked about this before. You didn't watch Game of Thrones. Jeez, you're all. I'm too busy. Like, I'm too busy books. reading comics. I don't really watch. Good. Any, that's the best way. That's the, that's the best answer. Um, th- th- this is about uh, 24 different characters, all taken from an old comic called the First Issue Specials. Um, and they're all living separate lives. And they think they're completely disconnected and all of them are connected uh, and they're actually sort of strings that are attached to all of them. And, and someone sort of lets the, lights the strings on fire and they all start to burn. Are and you, so they're all sort of looking for where the fire started. Are you writing the comic version of the bridge over San Luis Rey? Is that yeah, what this is? that's right. It's, it's not like other comics because it's not, I mean, uh, you, it's hard to find a, a comic analog. I mean, you'd have to go back to some like the Howard Chaikin stuff from the eighties that he was doing. Um, but most, it's not a superhero. It's even Watchmen's a team book. You know, it's kind of like a little bit like Watchmen, but that's basic. These people, these, they're 24 characters. Some of them are superheroes. Some of them are gods. Some of them are just normal people, cops and kids. Um, some of them live on planets far away. Some of them live in California. Some of them live in Gotham city. Uh, and, and, uh, some of them live in underground caves. You know, they they run the entire gauntlet, but all of them are connected, and they don't realize it. And that connection sort of changes the since it's about Doctor Fate, the fate of each of them. Gotcha. So, um, is it is it is it fair to say the story is about them discovering those connections? Yes, the story is about them discovering those connections. I mean, if, can we can we spoil the first issue? I mean, you can see the connections, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You can see like. Uh, so you have, uh, uh, let's see if we can do them all. Uh, Lady Cop and the Dingbats know each other. They live in the same small town. Um, Warlord, a Starman, and uh, Metamorpho are, are teamed up, and they're going to join the Justice League. And Meta- Metamorpho has traded his, his arm, made his arm, turned his arm to diamond and traded it for Dr. Fate's helmet. And he made that trade with a bunch of billionaire children who are the green team. Um and so they're the ones who supplied the helmet. The green team runs a, a Fox News-like network and just hired the Creeper to be their sort of new spokesman. Um, and they have uh, their bodyguard. Remember we talked about bodyguards earlier, but their, their bodyguard, the person who keeps them safe, is Codename Assassin. Uh, and well, what are the other connections? And... Um, and the, the the assignment they gave these greens the, the green team they gave the creeper when they hired him was he had to talk about a terrorist group called the Outsiders. That's another one. And and there's a guy named Manhunter who is the thousand generations of Manhunters are programmed to kill people, and he's been assigned to kill the green team. So there, that's his sort of assignment. And so all those so those are all the characters. That's all twenty. Oh, and and then. The helmet that they're using, their plan is to is to get Darkseid, the new gods, to come to Earth. But instead, they take a they take the wrong god. They get Atlas the Great, and he shows up. So that's all of them. That's all twenty four. So you can see there's just little connections between them, just like little tiny lines that draw. And then there's an incident that pulls them all together, 
which is the very end of this thing where they open up the helmet. Atlas the Great comes instead and he goes crazy and he starts killing people. They kill him. And then in the stress of that moment, they kill a dingbat and then they flee the scene of the crime. So Lady Cop comes upon this scene of this crime, doesn't know what it's about, doesn't realize that the reason it happened will lead her back to all 24 people. So it's sort of her solving that crime and figuring that out, like those connections. And, and, and the consequences of that, of that action. Yeah. So again, is that a lot? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And again, it's, uh, I think the, the cool thing about it using these characters, is a lot of people probably have never heard of. And what's funny is I, I think I own exactly one issue of, of first issue special and it's the lady cop. It's the lady. <laughs> that cop puts issue. you in the 90.0. That, 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 yeah, that, that one is that, all right. That one's all right. That lady that cop orange issue. cover. And I have no idea where it came from or how I, ended up <laughs> but and, yeah. And so it's really funny, but but when you're telling stories about these characters that are lesser known, like, again, you have that freedom to sort of, they're more malleable, right? First of all, there's fewer eyes on it. And I still don't know how you got editorial to sign out. Wait, I'm going to tell a story with all the characters of first issue. Supposed to, I mean, Creeper, I guess, maybe the most Warlord, Metamorpho. I, I... Warlord had his own toy line and had a hundred issue run. Um, um, Metamorpho is kind of known. Doctor Fate was just in a movie. Oh, that's know? true. Yeah, but it only it's only his helmet has shown up so far. Yes, only his helmet has shown up so far. So, yeah. so yeah, I'm I'm excited. I hear you say that it's about this, the discovery of the connections. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. It, more interesting than just okay, well, trying to solve a murder because we already know that. I don't even wouldn't even necessarily categorize it as a murder, more of an an accident, but uh, but really yeah, interesting. No, it, it's an incident. It's, it's think of it as a spark lighting a fire. That's how I think of it. Yeah. yeah re- really interesting start. And I think much like we were talking about with Phil on uh, Gotham city year one, like Jorge is the perfect artist for this because despite the fact oh some God, of these yeah. characters have superpowers, this isn't a, doesn't sound like it's going to be a super hero story. It's more about relationships, interactions, connections, as you, as you said, and Jorge does that really, really well. Yeah, yeah. For people who I don't know if you can see, but you put up a graphic, and you know you've got love everlasting, killing time, one bad day, danger street, Gotham City, and human target. Of those, only killing time is really a superhero story, um, and it's not even that superhero. Yeah, this is none. None of the these are all sort of genres that take place in superhero worlds more than anything else. Um, it was funny. Yeah. I, was, I was at I was at the dinner table with my kids because my kids read it, and my. My youngest, I even put an Instagram picture of him reading it. And my youngest son goes, uh, he's nine years old. And he, he says, okay, what's, what's Lady Cop's powers? Like, oh, she doesn't have any powers. And my wife is like, she doesn't? And I was like, she's like, he's like why, is, why is her name Lady Cop? I was like, that's not her name. So the dingbats call her just because they're rude. And I was like, well, wait, so she's just a regular police officer? I was like, yeah, that's all. She's a regular <laughs> police officer. Yeah. Um, and that that's the fun of that book is that you, you go from, you know, like, uh, you know, just – in the third issue, you know, she's like struggling to get her printer to work. And then you cut from that to, you know, the, uh, the high father and dark side talking about the source <laughs> wall. And, you know, the, the fact that those exist in the same universe, I think makes that, that, that's the, the joy of that book that those, those things that from the, you know, the lowest of instincts of trying to get, you know, toner and a printer to trying to figure out the meaning of life is are all contained in one comic makes, makes me think the whole thing's a little magical. Is it easier for you to write non-superheroes? I, I mean, I feel like the only traditional superhero thing, and it wasn't even traditional because you brought in some really flowery language. And 
uh, a lot of metaphor was uh, your Supergirl uh, run. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, I which was very westerny since I stole it all from True Grit. But yeah, um, other than that, I feel like, I mean, a lot of the stuff you're doing lately, it doesn't really like it's it's not the superpowers that make it interesting. You know, it's not Superman moving a planet or the Legion of Superheroes, you know, using all their power. I mean, I, the whole reason I was bought Legion of Superheroes back when I was a kid is because I gravitated to that book because I it was like more bang for my buck. You know, like I'm spending my 50 cents and I can see eight people with eight different superpowers instead of if I just bought Batman, I'm just seeing one, you know, or Superman. same. Yeah. So I was an Avengers fan as a kid. Like I yeah. get them all. Yeah. But is it easier for you to t- tell the stories that you like to tell that interest you when it's the, the superpowers are kind of set aside, so to speak? I mean, I mean, none of these stories are superpowers like set aside. Like, uh, I mean, in the, in the next issue of um, human target, he goes to Oa you know him and him and Nort, and you know they're 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 using the rings and everything. Um, but I mean, this has been my I don't know my mission or my whatever. But you know, from the very beginning, my uh, the idea was um, superheroes bring us to the table, right? Superheroes make you go to the movies. Superheroes interest our kids. They have bright colors. Um, that that gets us in the door but once you're in the door you have to tell human stories because superheroes are humans too um and and i think if you don't do that if you keep telling superhero stories over and over and over again uh what 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 happened to the westerns in the in the 50s and 60s will happen to superheroes where people just be like okay i get it guy in the black hat guy in a white hat guy in a white hat wins and they just won't go to westerns anymore um, so you have to do things like Unforgiven. You have to do um, yeah, things like The Searchers, where you, you you tell passionate human stories that take place within the Western context to make that context still lively and 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 and, and to still have a heartbeat at the center of it. Um, yeah, was or it, else you become just a nostalgia act. Or, or you risk repeating yourself. Was it Julie Schwartz when when he was editor that said they you could repeat stories like every seven years because the readers had aged out? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, it was every five years you, you got it because they were, they were selling from, you know, kids from eight to 11. And then the, then once you turn 12, you join the Boy Scouts and stop reading comics. And so they sold to the new, and and that's, you know, for better or worse, my generation is the generation that wouldn't give that, give that up. You know, we, I'm a nineties kid. um, And we were the ones who were like, Nope. We want to keep reading comics. We want to read more. And then, you know, people like Bendis and Mark Miller came along and said, you want comics for grownups in the mainstream universe? Here they are. You know, like, I mean, look at the difference in crossover events when we were kids, you know, of uh, uh, crisis on infinite earths was you know, oh, a bunch of planets are coming together and they're going to blow up. I mean, it's, it's something for little, it's something for kids. I mean, there's the art is amazing and you can look into it deep, but just the essential concept is very childlike as opposed to civil war, which is like, here's a metaphor for what's going on in Iraq. Yeah. You know? Like that was the big, that was the big crossover event 20 years later um, because we had decided that our audience had aged and we would age with them uh, for better or worse. And I think that's still where comics live. We, we sell comics, um, there are a ton of comics for kids, um, but the comics I write are for people who um, want to sit down on a Sunday night and, and watch, you know, whatever the HBO show is. They want to watch Sopranos. They want to watch Game of Thrones. I know you don't watch TV, but other people do. <laughs> other people, right? 
I'm aware uh, of it though. That, I'm aware of television. I know that it yeah. is. That, 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 that's, that's the audience. I think, I think we can get, um, and I mean, James Gunn, just a little peacemaker and he's doing all right for himself. So, yeah. I mean, I always say that my favorite comics are the ones that make me think, uh, and certainly you get more value when it's two days later. And I'm thinking back on a, on a comic. I mean, so I've read so many comics in, in my lifetime, you as well. And sometimes you have that knee jerk reaction at first and you think that it wasn't maybe as good as you expected it to, or you, you know, you're bringing your own kind of preconceived notions. But when you're thinking about it two days later and like, you know what, that really did work. Uh, and I think there's a lot of value to that, you know? I, I see real incredible writers who come to superheroes. And as soon as they're like, oh, I have superheroes, they dumb it down. They dumb down their own intelligence. They dumb down their expectation with the audience. And what that really means is they revert to cliches. The the writing becomes cliche, generically cliche. The cliffhangers become cliche. Oh, no, we'll... we'll uh, does, does Superman survive this? You know, like yes, of course he's good. So you ha- you you can't dumb down yourself. You want to write up to your audience. You want to um, you want to honor how smart your audience is by by giving them smart material. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I think. As a writer, you know, I'm not always selling the best. <laughs> I've talked about it with this with you. I've talked about it with Charles Soule with Scott Snyder. At, you know, as a writer, you want to keep evolving. You want to keep challenging yourself. But you also have to challenge us, us readers, right? Like the whole idea of give the readers what they need, not necessarily what they want. Because again, nostalgia can be very powerful. Um, but that's where you get stuck in that cycle of repeating your stories every five years. I don't, I don't like, I would love, um, I, I don't have a problem. I, I always bristle at that because that was Dan DiDio's like motto. And I, I love Dan. He's a friend of mine, but, um, I I think there is like Tom Taylor, he makes comics and he's just like, here's, here's what you want. Here's a night. Like I wrote Nightwing and we were always like, are they going to get together with Batgirl? He's like, no, you want to get them together with Batgirl? Here he is with Batgirl and he has a puppy and it's wonderful. And I think, I think there is a wonderful place for that in comics. I think you should give an audience what they want. You should, uh, I, I think people work really hard and sometimes you want to come home and you don't want to, like I was, I came home today and I, I turned on, a very, you know, minor key HBO show. And I was like, oh, I don't want to watch this. I'm going to turn on the sports highlights. Like sometimes you want to watch the sports highlights. Sometimes I think giving that to people, like I want to write a comic one day where it's just superheroes fucking and playing tennis. I'm, I'm going to write that comic and it's going to be wonderful. Uh, um, so so I, 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 I'm i against that. I think sometimes we should give our audience exactly what they want. I think that's fine. Okay, that's fair. Um, as long as it's not too often. But And the other thing, part about it is it's always got to be in service of t- telling the best story that you, you want to tell. Yes, of course. Yeah. If it, I mean, I mean, that, I mean, that's another thing is, is um, like Scott and I used to have this conversation. He, he He's from New We grew up both in the hearts of big cities. He grew up in the heart of Manhattan. I grew up in the heart of LA and um, Scott's stories tend to have like New York is a city that appears tough and horrible, but on the inside has this like beautiful heart, you know, where they're like, yeah, go, you know, there's, there's, there's something gorgeous. About I, I went to college in New York. Uh, LA is the opposite. It appears nice on the outside and in the middle it's rotten and corrupted. Yeah. And I feel like that's almost explains our two different approaches to writing. Like, like Scott's comics always have a, a little more. And, and sometimes I, I do envy that, but you, you, you almost can't control who you are as a writer. It's, it's, it's like raising your children. I don't know about you, but the great revelation of having children was that I don't do a fuck to raise them. Like they, they are, 
in utero have a personality and my job is to make sure they don't get run over while they're using that personality. Like it's, it's, that was such, I, I thought like everything was, Oh, you play music for them and they're nice. No, some kids are born a little dyspeptic and that's wonderful because we need dyspeptic people. And so, so it, it, it's, it's you, you, they find themselves and you help them find the best versions of themselves is, is my experience in parenting. Be, be, being a parent is like being a head football coach, right? You, you get too much credit when it goes right and you get too much blame when it goes wrong. Yeah. For and, sure. and, and my situation being so, so unique, you know, married at 20, kid at 21 divorced at 22 my my son i grew my son and i grew up together like we have wow. like, so, some of the like so many of the same interests are really good friends and he turned out great he's super calm even as a kid he never threw tantrums never he was just like the model kid you know that kid that all the other parents are like envious of then i have my daughter and it's the exact opposite you know she's yeah. very emotional she's you know, and I don't get me wrong. I love her. She's amazing. She, she's a dancer because goes like 14 hours of dance week, but very, very much the opposite of, of what my son was, you know? And so, yeah, I got credit for him turning out great and I didn't necessarily get blamed for her being bad, but I didn't do anything different in the that's way. That's right. I, that's right. So yeah, just goes and to that, show. They just, they are who they are. That's like writing, man. You, whatever comes, I mean, if you're, I mean, some writers aren't, honest with themselves you can write in cliches in it but if you're honest with yourselves if you're putting yourself out there what's going to come out you don't have always have as much control on it as you think you know it's you you're 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 right especially for writing comics where there's just not enough time for you to plan you know you're if you're writing a story a week 50 weeks a year um you're you're, you have to scrape your soul to get more story ideas (laughs) and so you're going to see your soul on the page well, and the, then the other aspect is, you know, the decisions you're making, they're not always necessarily 100% your own because you have other events and other things that you have to tie into and you have editorials kind of steering the ship with things course, that they want to yeah. do. And then, you know, you you take a chance on something and you have what the reader is bringing to it as well. And that doesn't always mesh. And that's the thing that bugs me. People complain about some of these books and it's like, not every comic is written for every single reader, you know? And if you're complaining about something, Lord knows there's no shortage of books out there on the racks these days. Go read. If you don't like something, go read something else rather than keep like hate reading something that you don't like. And then complaining to the creators, I promise you they're doing, they don't want to put out a bad comic. I promise you they're doing the best they can. Maybe this, you're just not the audience for it. This is super spoilery for human target. Um, but uh, you know, when, when human target had a big cliffhanger with issue six where Guy Gardner gets killed and people were like, oh, you have no respect. You killed Guy Gardner. And, and which is, of course, what I, you know, as, as a writer, I want them to react to it. It's wonderful to see them react. So I'm glad they were invested enough to have that. But I also wanted to be like, this is literally a book about a guy who fakes his death and comes back to life. I was <laughs> yeah. like, what are the chances there's going to be a twist before the end? So in the latest human targets reveal that guy Gardner is not dead. And I, 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 you know, you're just like, people are shouting in your face. Cause they assume you're like, I just, if the story's not over, the story's not, you want to beg them, like, don't give up on this. This is, you know, like, uh, cause people are used to watching a movie, you know, where, where, uh, um, you know, halfway, you know, if you're writing a, a screenplay, it, it, there's a there's a formula for it. And halfway through the third act, the hero loses everything. And every single movie you've ever watched, 15 minutes before the end, the superhero loses everything, is about to die and does something evil and gives up. That's just how every movie works. But the, our audience doesn't go like, fuck this writer. He doesn't know how to write this character. Yeah, they don't get up the and theater. walk out. 
Yeah, they, they say, okay, I'm going to give him another 15 minutes to see if he can come back from this. And yeah. Lord knows he does. Han Solo turns around and comes back and saves Luke. He doesn't abandon him. Yeah. Um, so, so, but comics aren't like that. I mean, almost because of the, just the, the role time plays where you're just like, uh, it, you know, it takes another month to come out. But you know what that part of our, I say, I, this is a two-edged sword. So I have double thoughts on that. On one hand, I can complain and whine as a writer. On the other hand, you're paying $5 for a comic book experience. That's one shit on a toilet. That's a ridiculous amount to pay for, for yeah. a shit worth of entertainment. So part of your entertainment is being mad about it, is going online telling your friends, fuck, fuck Tom, fuck this comic, mm-hmm. or going online saying, I love it. Like part of comics is the conversation. It's it, a comic book is not um, a comic book. It's a ticket into a world, right? It's a ticket into a community, a, um, a ticket into an identity. And uh, uh, so if that didn't exist, if nobody complained about comics, our industry wouldn't exist. So God bless them. At the same time, I'm, I, I get frustrated with them. I, don't, I have mixed feelings. As you can tell, since I write comics about people who don't think one thing at once, I'm the same way. I can think both sides of the same thing. No, that's a that's a great way to put it. I've never thought about it. But yeah, I mean, it is a, a community. And that, you know, like like anything, you're not going to please all the people, you know, all of the time. That's just not realistic because again we all bring our own baggage and our own life experiences to the story you're going to relate to it in a, in a different way you know there could be somebody that's reading human target that you know sees ice as the pov character whereas i'm looking at christopher as the pov character i'm putting myself in his shoes you know i hope nobody's putting themselves in uh in nort shoes though <laughs> the nord issue is super fun man <laughs> there, there there are two pages of the nord issue i i as soon as i saw the the letters and I, I screen grabbed it. I was like, well, now I'm just all downhill. I wrote the best I could ever write these two pages of Nort there. <laughs> I, there, uh, yeah, it's, um, I'll spoil it, but, but, but Nort ends up puking on, he goes up to, Oh, and gets really dunk and ends up puking on a guardian. And it just, it makes me laugh. Every time. <laughs> that's a very, yeah, that's a very Nort thing to do. Yeah. That's, it, that's been the joy of that. Series. All those JLI characters are just so perfect. They're just 100%. Incredible. What uh, what the, what those three guys did is, is is a brilliant thing. Well, it's been great chatting, Tom. It's always fun to to catch up. Uh, we really should try to do it more than once a year, uh, but I know how busy you are. So, congrats on the the Hollywood stuff. Hopefully, one of them pans out at at some point. I mean, I would I don't know about everybody else, but I was super bummed when the New Gods thing. Um, I was super bummed. I'll join you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounded amazing and you know with the success of mr miracle it seems just seems like a no-brainer to me um but do you do you happen to have uh james gunn's number can you now that he's in charge <laughs> can you nudge nudge wink wink this is this is my fifth run at hollywood this current thing i'm doing i've hit four brick walls so i'm i'm looking forward to to how it feels when i hit this fifth one so we'll see um, well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I hope hopefully I'm learning from each one and growing. I'm not. I'm 45. I'm literally like old dog, new tricks time. I'm like, how can I fucking learn anything at my age? Um, so, uh, but I, I'm I, I'm 44, not 45 yet. Damn it, Tom, embrace your youth. Um, but but uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, I'm I'm trying to see if it works. It probably won't. Both yeah, from everything people tell me, it's all about persistence. You know, you, you get that one hit, and it can lead to uh, to other things. In fact, I was just talking to. Uh, Colin Kelly and Jackson Langson uh, earlier today, and they were talking about their Batman One Bad Day special that's coming up, uh, their, their Clayface special. And, you know, uh, Clayface Basil being this frustrated actor and yeah. how they, they put their angst of 15 years of being fucked over by Hollywood into it, into that book, 
uh, with Basil as kind of their cathartic character. So, uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with, uh, the, the angst that Hollywood can, can bring. So, uh, at least you have comics to fall back on. Not to fall back on always my first choice, always my first love. Um, I'm just trying something new, you know, just, but, but, but that I, I will never not do comics. They're well, more fun. Not... They're they're more fun to write than Hollywood. They're more rewarding. And and uh, I mean, if I if I am just if I went to a desert island and had to take one medium with me, I would take comics. That yeah, that that same. that's 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 the thing I most like to do. I love to read a good. I mean, I'm taking off next week. I'll have you know. I'll finally have. To, I work so hard. I'll finally have time to write pop culture. And I, my plan is like I'm just going to read comics the whole time. I'm just deciding which comics to read. Yeah. What's at the top of your to read pile? Anything come to mind? It's it's been a big debate. I think I might. I think I want to do some strips. Um, I've been into strips lately. I. I am of the opinion, and I, I say this out loud a lot of times, that Peanuts by Charles Schultz is the best combination of words and pictures that's ever been done from the Egyptians to today. I just think that was the height our medium ever hit. And I always say that out loud and I've read a ton of peanuts, but I've never really read peanuts like back to back. So I might just pick out, you know, see if I can read like five years of peanuts comics over the next week and just, 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 just see if I'm right in that assessment. That's the current leader. Um, I know that's a stupid, boring answer, but, no, that's a great. I think I was in third grade and we were on spring break and we were going camping. I went to the library and checked out like a giant, like whole two, three years of peanut. I checked out three of them uh, and I just devoured them on the, on the drive. Uh, so yeah, I don't think you can go wrong with, with peanuts. Uh, I'm, I'm lining up my fan. I have my fanographics, you know, and I've been sitting on my shelf, just not read for, you know, whatever it is, 10 years now. And I'm looking at it. I was like, I just start in 1960 and go through 1965, and, you know, do like the golden years of that, you know, sitting in by, by a Christmas tree, not 20 Christmas trees or one Christmas tree, <laughs> you know, some Bing Crosby on the background, reading some peanuts. I, I could disappear into the world and be, I think I could find some Zen in that. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I do love peanuts. I, I do probably have to say my favorite strip though is probably Calvin and Hobbes. Um, so. I love Calvin and Hobbes. I, I was just talking to an art dealer who got a tour of the because he donated, you know, most of his art to Ohio State, mm-hmm. and that there's so many things that confuse me at Bill Goldwater Watterson, but the, I mean, because those pages go for two hundred thousand dollars a pop. And so he donated, you know, $50 million worth of art or something like that. If you add it all up, I mean, of course they would be cheaper if they were all out there, but maybe they wouldn't be peanuts strips go for you yeah. know, $50,000 and there's a ton of them. Um, so yeah, that's, that's insane that he just decided to donate all that art to one place and you, you yeah. can, and they had just, and it's just like stacked as they're stacked in shelves. They're not in frames or there's not like a museum or anything. There's just, you know, like fucking file folders, you know, you open a file and there's literally $10 million worth of strips in a file. Yeah. They really should display that, you know, take some of the best, (laughs) most iconic pieces. And you, I mean, don't, you have a collection like that. You can charge museums, right. To display it for a certain period of time. Isn't that the way that works? Like a traveling. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, back in the day, a lot of strip guys donated their stuff because they weren't worth anything. If they could donate them, they could use it as a write-off and pretend mm-hmm. they were worth things. So a lot, a lot of uh, strip art survives um, in archives at different universities. 
Well, that's good. As opposed to the, a lot of the comic pages that they just took down to the basement and burned. Yeah. <laughs> just heart, heartbreaking. Like really? You should have Marv Wolfen on tell him his stories of doing that. Oh, I know. Yeah. I've talked to Marv saving about those that. Pages. Yeah. Saving, yeah. Saving action comics pages. Crazy. Uh, well, look forward to the announcements in the new year of, uh, of what else you have coming up. I'm very, very curious what your, uh, what your next independent book is going to be. Uh, that you've sold. So uh, as we're winding down here, anything I got else? Two. There's, no, there's three. three. There's three independent books I've sold. Fantastic. So they're coming soon. Yeah. Great. Uh, anything else you want to share with our listeners as we're winding down here? I uh, just thank you and Merry Christmas. My God. Thank you. Thank you for, a, for, I had a fantastic year. You let me put out the weirdest books. You put food on my table. And th- thank you personally. Uh, just, uh, you are so supportive online. Um, I feel like Twitter is slowly dying and that's where I mostly know you from. So hopefully when it dies, we can meet somewhere else. Beyond yeah. This Twitter. yeah. I, I, I'm telling you, it's a billion dollar idea for anybody out there that can do it. Okay. Twitter, but without Elon. That's it. it. That's all you have to do. It'll, that's it'll it. Work. That's, that's it. all we need. That's, that's all we it. need. But we just want to go there and just have the same thing again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Cause it goes back to what you're saying about the community. I mean, that's what's so great about, about social media, comic creators for the most part are so accessible. You know, they want to hear, you know, sometimes to their detriment and you know, this personally, they want to hear a reaction. You know, you want to know that your, uh, that your work is that people care about it. You know, whether it's obviously you prefer a positive reaction, but a negative reaction can be, you know, there can be some worth there too. It's better than people not picking it up and not caring at all. Right. Apathy is the worst. Very much. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, the the death of Twitter is is a depressing thing for comic book create because yeah, so much of our community is then. And I, 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 if anyone who follows me, I'll tell you, I know I'm boring now. I'm a boring Twitter. All I do is, I now treat it like a bulletin board. By it's all by my book. I don't tweet. I mean, I mean, stop posting pictures of my dog, um, uh, because that dude does not deserve pictures of my dog on his site. Oh, so no, he doesn't. Yeah, I'm um, only there because there's there's no other place to go. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, you know, my mission, I just want more people reading comics. So same, same. Uh, so everybody go out there and pick up some, uh, some Tom King books, highly recommend highly tar- uh, human target. You can get in on the ground floor of danger street. First issue just came out. So you want to be part of the dialogue as this weird book about these uh, Z I'll call them Z list characters. And the, <laughs> yeah. Their, their interactions. Um, and definitely, yeah, definitely pick up love everlasting. Uh, and that Batman, One Bad Day Riddler, yeah, one of the best books of, of the year, no doubt. So uh, happy holidays to you and your family, Tom. Um, Thanks, I did. I did send you a, a little video. Check it out once we're, we're done here. It's a, a, a little uh, right before our holiday party, a uh, little spin around the living room so you can see many, many of the trees. So I just, I'm going to show this. You said 80 trees. I was, I was like, oh, I'm being hyperbolic. I had 30 trees and I was 50 trees short. So yeah. I, I, you're the best. I'm yeah. still going to tell it's, this story. It's all, it, you know what? It's all my, my lovely wife. Uh, she brings so much holiday cheer. And uh, yeah, the, the sad part is January when everything comes down, the house just feels so bare. It's oh like, man, uh, January is the worst month. Oh, yeah. what a terrible month. Yeah. No, I, I think February is the worst. The, the, once you, you lose football, and you're like, oh, uh, now there's just yeah. winter and fucking basketball, which I love basketball. It's not even good, good till June. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, baseball starts up in April. You guys, you, you, it wasn't that long ago that you guys won a World Series. Uh, can I be honest with you? Now that I'm in my 40s, I'm out on baseball. I'm out. Really? It's boring. It's boring. I finally admitted it to myself. 
Okay. Baseball is boring. You watch it and it's boring. Well, you know what? You I'm out. I think I think it was you, your guys won a World Series and you know you're satisfied. My my team, the Rangers, they still never won a World Series. If they ever won a World <laughs> Series, maybe then I'll be able to say, okay, I'm out. I'm out on baseball. Maybe that should be it. I did. I did. It was. It was. You know, I gave my kids the joy of like rooting for a World. Series. But you know, I should. And I think baseball fans would probably agree with me. It's not fun rooting for a team who's in the World Series. It's very. Like, like even this weekend I was, you know, watching the England France game and it, I wasn't having fun because I was, I randomly chose to root for England. I have no idea why, but it wasn't fun watching them lose yeah, it's and stressful. Yeah. And watch that dude hit, dude, miss that ball. I was like, I'm going to have, this is not an enjoyable experience. I'm going to go read some peanuts comic by Christmas tree. <laughs> uh, uh, so it wasn't like, it's not fun to be in the world because every pitch you're like, I hate this. Why am I? So yeah, yeah that's very um, stressful. It's, it's fun to win when you're in the midst of it. Maybe, maybe not so much, but that's true. Uh, Anyway, uh, once again, Tom, thanks so much for joining me. It's uh, it's always fun to catch up, and uh, hopefully, I'll run into you at a con again uh, sometime soon. What uh, WonderCon probably? Be, you know, probably don't even have your con schedule for next year yet. I don't way, even. That's I way too far. Have my cons way too year. way too far in advance. Far. Uh, so, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to your family. To you, listeners, thanks for spending some of your holiday season with us. Whatever you celebrate, Kwanzaa or Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever it is, hope it's a joyous time uh, with family. And we want to thank you for the support and for listening as always. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, bro. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.